Today I'm going to try my best to answer a question that came in. Do I need to hold my friends accountable for their ongoing sin? <laughs> yeah, apparently that is a heavy topic. I got, the, I got this little card. I'm like, yes, of course I would talk on this. And every person I told I was doing this, especially some pastor friends I have, all said, good luck. <laughs> so thank you in advance for the grace that you're going to give me. <laughs> so if I were having a one-on-one conversation, I would probably try to dig a little deeper into the situation, asking questions like, well, what are your friends doing? How is this affecting you? What is at stake for you in all of this? And why do you feel like you need to be the one to have this conversation with your friend? I'm going to skip all of that and just trust that we love our friends and we want the best for them. Maybe we just don't want them to hurt, and that is reason enough to try and get them to stop sinning. But when I typically hear about these kinds of conversations happening, the sin in question is usually perceived sexual immorality, and the person sitting down with their friend is usually doing all the talking. The situation I hear most about is that someone has decided to cohabitate with their partner before getting married. And in the circles I run, I hear a lot from people of faith who have recently revealed that they are part of the LGBTQ community. Usually the justification for having such a conversation comes from Paul the Apostle, who wrote, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And the verse we'll be mostly working from today is also from Paul. Um, that's the ones on the back of your paper, and it reads, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the last time someone tried to do this with me, we were sitting on the balcony of the city tap house on Walnut Street. It was an autumn evening, um, and it was cold, but it wasn't cold enough to keep everyone else from coming out. Uh, so without any kind of transition, this friend of mine pulled out a Bible and started flipping to different uh, commands or rules that I was breaking. He kept, <laughs> yeah, he kept saying that he loves me, but he doesn't love my sin. It was because he loves me that he would even start such a conversation. Every time uh, I had a response, it was met with another Bible verse, and I just couldn't keep up. I was naturally upset. On the one hand, I'm forced into the position of defending my perceived sinfulness to a man with a Bible sitting across from me at the city tap house as we're surrounded by people. And I was lured under the premise of getting together to catch up. On the other hand, I talk to this friend about once every six months, and I only see him when he is in town from the West Coast. He really had no idea what was going on. I wonder why he would want to do something like that. By the way he approached me, I could tell he's done this kind of thing to others. If I were to imagine that Jesus was sitting at the table, I like to think that Jesus would say something like, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck of dust from your brothers. I hope you would say that anyway. Sometimes this accountability thing is community-based. There are accountability groups people can join based on sin, 
And uh, apparently there are even mobile apps for this. So I like the idea of this. After some reflection and prayer, someone names a thing that is coming between they and God. They join a little community of people with similar struggles, praying and meeting with one another regularly. But someone named Mike Foster said in a 2015 article titled Why I Don't Believe in Christian Accountability, said that if I were having an illicit affair, I'm not going to confess it to four guys at a Denny's breakfast. <laughs> yeah, yeah to, I don't understand why these things have to happen over food, but they do. Yet, too often, Christian accountability is carried out in these types of environments. We meet in small groups in a weekly environment with a few of our friends. Ultimately, there is a lid on how transparent these conversations can be. And too often, we believe that we are, if we are meeting weekly, then we are accountable. It seems like Mike Foster is saying that the heart is in the right place, but unfortunately, the practice is not. Mike continued saying, the primary reason Christian accountability doesn't work is because we are more interested in justice and fixing a problem. I've seen too many times great men and women get chewed up by this process. When we fail, what we need most is grace and a second chance, not a lecture. This kind of thing fails uh, the most when the focus is on behavior modification and not working toward a deeper relationship with God. But for some people, it really is all about the sin. Uh, Chris is going to get an image up of some folks that I met on Wednesday uh, when I was walking through Penn's campus. It's okay. We were, um, I was having a little trouble getting this image from the Google Doc it was in into a JPEG to put into the slideshow to get to you, so I'm sorry. So uh, there is one man, oh, there we go. Uh, there is one man holding a sign listing 14 things uh, you can do or be that will send you straight to hell. I found this picture, by the way, in a West Philadelphia Facebook group. Behind the sign about the feminist, you can... It's okay. Well, there's someone holding a sign about a feminist. Um, and you can actually see me in it having a conversation with a lady named Mary. That was probably one of the most interesting conversations I've had all week. And if you ask me about it later, I'm happy to report on what she said. Mary was very much into helping people. Uh, know and love God. She said that these are the things that keep someone away, from, that keep someone from living a life of freedom. And I can very much get on board with that kind of logic because um, Paul in his letters to Romans said that when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Now, I just want to be clear that I'm not at all condoning the way this group shares the gospel or even the message they are sharing. Uh, when people respond to others with condemnation and not compassion, it indicates a serious moral problem, uh, not truly having come to terms with their own weakness and needing God's mercy. But in the middle of our chat, Mary stopped me and asked me if I am married, looking for a, a wedding band on my left hand. I said no. And she very quickly asked me if I fornicate. 
that type of language, uh, that culture is just so foreign to me. I had no idea what she was talking about. My response was probably something like, I don't know, sh should I start? <laughs> she gave me her definition and I hesitated. She said, oh, well you must be a fornicator because you didn't answer me. And I said, no, I just don't think I have to give you an account of my sins. Mary replied, okay, well just don't fornicate because if you do and you die, you will go right to hell. There was no relationship. And the conversation was aimed at getting me to stop committing some sin she wasn't even sure if I was committing. And even after identifying myself as another follower of Jesus, she still could not recognize God at work inside of me. I think if Jesus were standing on Penn's campus watching them, he might call out, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. So what then is Christian accountability? It seems like it's about getting people to be closer to God, but it appears we keep getting stuck somewhere. My friend Margaret wrote to me, uh, a few thoughts on the subject. Margaret and I met at a pilgrimage in St. Louis, Missouri. She lives in Ohio and she's seeking her master's in social work. She had this to say. I am very uncomfortable with the idea of another person deciding on whether something is a sin because in my mind, so much of sin has to do with intention and consciousness. But I can also imagine it being constructive I have had friends that have told me hard truths that were uncomfortable, but also helped me make more healthy and loving choices for myself. I like when she said, uh, sin has to do with intention and consciousness. She's suggesting that sometimes we're unaware of the things we're doing that might be harmful to us. My other friend, Augustine of Hippo, echoes her statement. <laughs> but my sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, but in myself and his other creatures. And that search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. I think these are what Paul was getting at when he said, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Paul isn't talking about a determined and hardened sinner. Instead, he means someone who has fallen into sin, finding themselves trapped in a place they never thought they would be. The overtaken one needs to be restored, not ignored or excused. They are certainly not to be destroyed. The goal is always restoration. So whose job is it to do the restoration? It's you, you who are spiritual. Paul doesn't limit that burden to pastors or preachers or church leaders. It's for each of us. Now, you can try to argue with Paul about this, saying that you don't feel very spiritual. But he's likely to remind you, as he did in his first letter to the Corinthians, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, therefore making you spiritual. 
He continues saying that we ought to restore our friends with a spirit of gentleness and bearing each other's burdens. Paul isn't saying that Christian accountability means that your friend who is sinning is accountable to you. No, he is saying that you are accountable to your friend. The burden is very much on the friend who is not caught in the sin. The expectation here is that you will indeed love your neighbor as yourself. I want to share another example with you from my own life. I have a friend with whom I used to volunteer. He's probably around 65, but he's also said that he's 59 years old for the last few years that I've met him. Uh, around Easter time, he lost his 95-year-old mother. He's not handling his grief very well, and he's been taking to the bottle, so to speak, and easing his pain with alcohol. On Wednesday this past week, the same day I chatted with my first friend, Mary, I made a surprise visit to his apartment downtown. When he greeted me, his breath smelled like liquor masked by Listerine. He was quiet and reserved, a change from his usual upbeat self. I think he thought that if he didn't talk much, he wouldn't slur his speech, and I wouldn't notice that he had been drinking. But I did notice. I asked him how he's doing, how he's managing his grief, what he needs, how things are with his partner. Fine, he said. Everything is fine, fine, fine. And it was quiet again. After I left, I gave his partner a call who said that things were not fine. The verbal abuse recently turned physical. I'm accountable now. I see very clearly that my friend is caught in a sin or is overtaken. He needs restoration. And because I love him and I profess to have the spirit of God dwelling within me, I'm going to help carry his burden. I have to work with our community of volunteer friends and his partner to restore him gently. I don't really know what the fix is, especially since this all just happened this past Wednesday, but I think I should start by asking some earnest questions. The situation is probably going to need consistent phone calls and text messages to he and his partner. It's going to require difficult conversations and persevering through rejection. It might even mean offering my couch for a few nights. I probably wouldn't take the approach that my very first friend took with me, saying something like, listen, I know you're hurting because your mom died, but the Bible says you shouldn't drink. If you read it, the Bible very clearly says that you drunkards are wicked. So you should stop doing that because God doesn't approve. You just need to submit to the will of God. Could you imagine the devastation that would cause? That could be uh, the element of temptation Paul is talking about when he says, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. There is a very real temptation to take a hands-off approach by letting the other person figure things out, you know, as if they've been doing a good job of that on their own so far, and saying that we've done our part by having a pointed conversation. But there is also a temptation that we shouldn't try and, tra- that we should try and transfer the entire weight of the situation to us, in trying to help our friends, we must remember not to, take our, not to fully take our friend's burden, but to patiently share it. So where do we start? Well, the best way to start is to pray for God's grace and forgiveness in our own lives. If we truly recognize how much we need God's grace, our heart will be much more compassionate when we encounter other people who are struggling. 
if we've experienced how patient and gentle God is in our weakness, then we are going to be more merciful towards others. Another friend of mine, uh, Catherine of Siena, learned that when we notice a person's sins, we should say to ourselves, today it is your turn, tomorrow it will be mine, unless divine grace holds me up. So the next time you have a friend who seems like they're doing something that's causing them harm, be accountable to them. Start in self-reflection and prayer. Don't have a heated conversation over Denny's breakfast. Uh, try a neutral place where it's just the two of you. Seek to understand, not to be understood. Share the burden, but don't take ownership of it. Remember, today it is your turn. Tomorrow, it will be mine. I think that's enough for now. Um, I ended this a little earlier than I think we're normally accustomed to. So I just want to know, does anybody have any questions or does anything kind of remain unsettled for you that you just want to ask while I'm in front of the room? I know this is new, so don't be shy. Yeah. But you didn't really touch on how to denote what is and isn't sin. <laughs> yeah, that one's hard. <laughs> uh, right? When I thought about this, I very much could have taken this in three ways. I could have taken it as uh, going on like the nature of sin, knowing what, uh, you know, what is or isn't sin uh, this way, like how to do it. But I think knowing, I think to that, like, what is the sin? I don't, it's, it's hard because, you know, I, just, I mean, just running a stop sign, right? Or having an ill thought about someone. These could all be sins. But I think what Paul is talking about here is something that's stopping someone from living fully. So that's why I used the, um, the example of my friend who is uh, facing alcoholism in the midst of his grief, you know, I can't change his heart to stop like swearing or something, but this is a very real problem. He's overtaken, and I can help him with that. So it is very much, you know, your discernment paired with, you know, praying and seeing God's mercy and grace in your life. Does that answer that? Okay. Thank you, Lindsay. Yeah, Chris. <laughs> um, you start with that because you've said to this person that you've already decided, not that you're like them, but you're now judging them. Sure. And he said it just, you know, what kind of response have you gotten when you do that? Do you, do you continue the conversation or does the person walk away and just think, you know, I'm not going to have this conversation? Whereas if you establish a loving relationship with someone, yeah. I'm noticing something in your life that's perhaps, let me walk with you through this. Let me help you with this. 
Did you all hear this on the other side of the room? So, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so Chris was saying um, that in uh, her experience, having a loving relationship as the start of this kind of conversation is much more fruitful and productive than starting a conversation saying you're a miserable sinner because that just kind of ends the conversation. I think I have time for one more. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think restoration is a little different for everyone. It depends on the situation. So for the friend I gave the example of, restoration might mean that he um, you know, stops drinking and stops abusing his partner, um, but also has tools to be able to deal with grief and life's hard lessons going forward. So I really do think that one depends on the situation, but I like to think that Jesus would take a holistic approach to this and restore the person all around, and not just get you know the topical sin, like you run stop signs, you should stop. It's why do you feel you need to do this? Why do you feel you know curing the sin of um, maybe entitlement on the road? Well, thank you all for listening. Um, my information is in the back of the bulletin if you want to talk about this further. <laughs>